And we will attempt to work through this, but as we learned from uh, Bill Murray's wonderful film, What About Bob? Baby, baby steps. steps. Baby Steps. So we're launching in today uh, with a baby step, and I want to begin baby step, that. Baby step into the third century? <laughs> yeah, but I need, I need. Hello and welcome to another saber-rattling episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We dig into all kinds of issues on this program. Uh, lately we've been digging mostly just into Sola Scriptura. Uh, Ken and I both came from Protestant backgrounds and this was a big question for us on our way into the Catholic Church. Ken, you ready to dig in again? Yes, I am. All right. So we've done is Sola Scriptura scriptural multiple endless episodes, episode upon episode on that particular Angle. We've done a couple on, is Sola Scriptura historical? Is there a historical precedent for Sola Scriptura? And today, I'm starting, yeah, I'm starting to think that you're a, little, you're a bit into hyperbole. First I might of be. All, first of all, you announced our episode last week as a Titanic episode. I know. Today it's a swashbuckling, and our episodes are described by you as being, what do you say, eternal? Or Could be, episode upon episode. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let me come at it this way. Because I want to remind those who are viewing and those who are listening um, about our motivation in this show. Our, our motivation for creating this, this show is the desire that we have to share with our non-Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ our reasons for becoming Catholic. You know, I'm very aware of the fact that I wasn't a Catholic at one point, and I thought Catholicism was nuts. And so, you know, I... I want to um, I want to communicate. I'm always wanting to com- communicate the the process of reasoning that was involved in coming to the to the church, and I think that's the only way to really um, respect uh, people that are listening to us and hearing us, and, and hopefully so let people know. Again. Yeah, hope hopefully let people know who are not Catholic that we have deep sympathies with your positions yeah. because they were deeply held for us. Um, yes. So so this, yeah. that's kind of why we want to take the time to to respect the position and respect the arguments. And that's why we're taking so much time on Sola Scriptura, too, because um, this was, after all, it's referred to as the battle cry of the Reformation. This was the battle cry. Not only is it the battle cry of the Reformation, but it's the foundation, really, of Protestantism as a system of thought or as a worldview. That is the conviction that the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else, just the Bible, is all that is necessary for faith and practice. In other words, Bible-only Christianity. This is the foundation. Now, for me, and I know it's true for you too, it's true for so many who have made this uh, journey from Protestantism to the Catholic Church, one of the most important, one of the key issues for me was coming to believe that Bible-only Christianity uh, wasn't biblical. It wasn't what is actually taught in the New Testament. It was coming to believe that Bible-only Christianity um, isn't historical, uh, meaning that it was not the the faith and practice of the early church. And then um, our topic for today, coming to see, coming to believe that sola scriptura isn't workable. That is, it hasn't worked over the past 500 years. It doesn't work, and it cannot work. And I mean by that, even in principle, 
it cannot work. And this is something that I think that even people who hold the Sola Scriptura can see a little bit. It's certainly something that I saw even at the time, that it wasn't working out very well for the thousands of denominations, for the dozens of churches in my own little town in Kentucky. It was, it was not working out. Um, of course, on, on some level, this is, a, this is a very strong argument. On some level, it's, it's not as strong, because if Sola Scriptura is true, you kind of almost don't care if it's workable, right? But at the same time, you have to acknowledge that, well, by your fruits, you know, by their fruits, you shall know them in a, in yeah. a sense. Yeah. And so when I say that it hasn't worked and that it doesn't work and it cannot work, I understand that I'm making uh, bold statements there. And we will attempt to work through this. But as we learned from uh, Bill Murray's wonderful film, What About Bob? Baby, baby steps. steps. Baby Steps. So we're launching in today uh, with a baby step, and I want to begin baby that. step baby step into the third century. <laughs> yeah, but I need I need I want to begin uh, this episode then by looking again at a passage that you and I looked at last week from one of the early church fathers, Saint Vincent of Lorraine. Now, Saint Vincent wrote his uh, commonatorium. Um, we're talking mid fifth century. He wrote this specifically in order to offer guidance to his readers on how a Christian can distinguish. Orthodox teaching from the teaching of the various heretics that were roaming about at the time, okay? And in the passage that I want to read again, Vincent points out that while sola scriptura was not the practice of the church at the time, and he explains that all over the place in this book, the Commonatorium, sola scriptura appears to have certainly been the practice of the heretics, and, uh, and this is a, a thousand years before the Reformation that Vincent yeah. is writing this stuff, by the way. He's not responding to Martin Luther, even though it sounds like he's responding to Martin Luther. Yeah, that, that's true. He, he's responding to heretics that existed at the time. Passage is very colorful, and I, I want to read it again. This is what he says. If one should ask one of the heretics, the Donatists, the Montanists, whoever, what ground have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church? He has a ready answer. For it is written, that's his answer, for it is written, and forthwith he produces a thousand examples, a thousand authorities from the law, the Psalms, the apostles, and the prophets, by means of which, interpreted in a new and wrong way, or on a new and wrong principle, the unhappy soul may be precipitated from the height of Catholic truth to the lowest abyss of heresy. Do heretics appeal to scripture? They do indeed, and with a vengeance. For you may see them scamper through every single book of Holy Scripture, whether among their own people or among strangers, in private or in public, in speaking or in writing, at convivial meetings or in the streets, hardly ever— That's your Dr. Seuss stuff right there, yeah. Yeah, we're back into Dr. Seuss. Hardly ever do they bring forward anything of their own which they do not endeavor to shelter under the words of Scripture. You see— you, you will see an infinite heap of instances, that is, citations from Scripture, hardly a single page of their writings which does not bristle, bristle with plausible quotations from the New Testament and the Old. So here, here's the problem that is inevitably raised by Sola Scriptura, and it's this. How is the average disciple of Jesus Christ to know what he's to believe? I'm, I'm talking about the average disciple who works a full-time job, who has to make a living, has to pay the mortgage, um, is raising a family, is married, spends his Saturdays watching Little League games or going to ballet recitals or whatnot. Or trying to beat the desert level on Mario 3. Yeah, yes. Barely has time to read the Bible, maybe a few minutes every day. How is this guy 
supposed to distinguish true teaching from false. Now, I want to walk through a little bit of the complexity here because Protestantism begins by insisting that the Bible is both materially and formally sufficient. It's materially sufficient. All the material is there. God's given us everything we need. And it's formally sufficient. All the material is there. And it's clear enough that any average Joe, I mean, average intelligence who approaches the Bible, who reads it seriously, maybe uses a few uh, you know, biblical tools, prays for the Holy Spirit to lead him, can know what the Bible's teaching. The premise well, being that you may not be able to figure out how to, put it, how to put together the Ikea cabinet, but you should be able to tell what the Bible says about how to get saved. Yeah, or, and the other important issues, because that's not the only thing that's discussed. Okay, so this is where Protestantism begins. It's materially sufficient. It's formally sufficient. Anybody with average intelligence can know. But then why, one wonders, do we have so many Protestant denominations and sects that disagree with one another on all manner of doctrinal issues, even important issues? But then as soon as we raise that question, the answer comes, well, the Bible is indeed material and formally sufficient. It's all that we need for faith and morals, but it has to be properly interpreted, you see. And you can't just pick up an English translation, Matt, and read it, because what you're getting then is someone's interpretation of what the, the Hebrew and the Greek The dynamic equivalency saying. effect, yeah. right? Like someone is not yeah. just saying word for word what it says in the Greek. They're trying to transmit what they believe the meaning is in the Greek because there's idioms and expressions that don't translate from Greek directly into English. And that's why every translation is to some degree an interpretation. You're, you're, you're exactly right. And so this is what you will hear. Well, then, you know, you need, in order to interpret it properly, you need to have some knowledge of the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. You have to know their meanings, word meanings, grammar, syntax. You've got to have an understanding of the religious context, historical context, cultural context in which the apostles were writing. Yeah, but what if you didn't graduate high school? Well, that's You know the what I'm problem. saying? Like, is that, this also presumes that every individual Christian has to have like a master's in theology. Yeah, you know, you've got to be able to carefully track with an author's uh, train of thought. You've got to be able to read everything they say in context and understand their vocabulary. But, okay, you're, you're responding correctly because anyone would respond to this by saying, but, but I thought you just said, I thought you just said it was clear enough that any average Joe could read and could follow and could understand. So which is it? Can an average Joe read and follow? Or um, is it the Bible scholar that can read and follow? And even then, the problem just gets deeper because there are men and women representing every denomination on earth who are Bible scholars and devote their entire lives to learning the, the biblical languages, learning how to use the tools, learning everything that's just been described above. And they still do not agree. As I said, they're scholars representing every denomination on earth, and they don't agree. And not just on a few things, but on many on major things. things. Major things. You and I have both met in our work here at the Coming Home Network, people from every background you can imagine. I've met people who are uh, evangelical messianic Jews who keep kosher laws, but I've also met people who are mid-Acts dispensationalists who believe you don't have to pay attention to anything in the Bible up until Acts chapter 28, because that's the dispensation we're in right now. And in between them, you got everybody yeah. from Pentecostals who don't believe in the Trinity to people who believe that you're not actually baptized unless you're dunked fully underwater. These are major differences. This isn't just like a, well, I mean, how important is—I mean, this— People say unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and all things charity, but people don't even agree on what's essential. 
Yeah, it's not just the issue of justification, how one is saved, whether salvation can be lost once you have it. It's how should the church be organized? How is it run? Um, it's the sacraments. Do you do have they free exist? will? Yeah. Do the sacraments exist? And if they do, what do they do? How many are there? Two, three, five? Yeah. And by the way, you mentioned mid-Acts uh, dispensationalism, and then you refer to the end of the book of Acts. Well, there's mid-Acts, and then there's late-Acts dispensationalism. Oh, that's true. I was I was invoking yeah. the late-Acts. I think the mid-Acts people are in Acts 2 or something No, like mid-Acts would be Acts 9 through 13, somewhere in there. That's but anyway, okay, given all of this, though, how is the individual Christian to know is the question that is raised by St. Vincent. Now, Last week, you and I looked together at the answer that the early church fathers give to this question of how to distinguish true teaching from false. How can we know? And their answer went like this. I cap, uh, recap it quickly. Their answer went like this. Scripture is the sole inspired written record of what the apostles taught. We agree. But their letters were not written to summarize Christian doctrine. And for the most part, they do not summarize Christian doctrine. This is why, this is why, this is common sense. This is why scholars can study the epistles for decades and decades and not agree on what is being taught about a number of issues. Well, because of this, apostolic tradition, this is the teaching of the fathers now, apostolic tradition, meaning the teaching of the apostles as it was preserved in the doctrine and liturgy worship of the churches that they founded, Apostolic tradition is needed to provide the interpretive key to Scripture. Apostolic tradition provides, if you will, the lens through which the teaching of Scripture can be brought into focus. So you have Scripture inspired and infallible, but you have apostolic tradition, and the two have to work together to know, to distinguish the true teaching from the false. And as you and I saw last week, Matt, this is how Irenaeus in the second century understood the question of how can we know? This is how Tertullian and Origen and so many others understood the answer to the question in the 3rd century. This is how Vincent understood the answer to the question in the 5th century. And this is what he says. I'm quoting again from the Commonitorium. I have often then inquired earnestly and attentively of very many men eminent for sanctity and learning how and by what sure and, so to speak, universal rule I may be able to distinguish the truth of Catholic faith from the falsehood of heretical depravity. I have always, and in almost every instance, received an answer to this effect. So listen carefully. Whether I or anyone else should wish to detect the frauds and avoid the snares of heretics as they rise and continue sound and complete in the Catholic faith, we must, the Lord helping, fortify our own belief in two ways— First, by the authority of the divine law, their scripture, and then by the tradition of the Catholic Church. As it turns out, Matt, the position of Irenaeus in the second century, Origen and Tertullian in the third, St. Vincent in the fifth, this was the position of the church in the sixth century, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, the eleventh, the twelfth, the thirteenth, all the way up to 1517. You know, what's even crazier than that is what you don't find. You find anybody who's denying that, what Vincent just said about the the primacy of, of Catholic tradition, you know what else they're denying? The divinity of Jesus, right? They're denying, you know, the yeah. resurrection of Christ. They're denying a whole bunch of other things. So it's not like you can find strong Christians committed to the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus who are saying this 
you know, that you don't need the tradition yeah. of the church. Anybody who's saying you don't need the tradition of the church is going off the rails into crazy land. Yeah, that, that's a critical issue. We've talked about this in past episodes that that uh, that while you do not find Baptists and, and Presbyterians and Lutherans in those early centuries, you know, you do find the Montanists, the Manichaeans, you know, the Marcionites, you do. The, the Docetists who believe Jesus was a hologram. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Hologram, yeah. Like the kind of Disneyland on the Pirates yeah, of the Caribbean? Pretty much. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw that at the end of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, that little hologram, I was blown away. Um, anyway, the question is, how did the change to Sola Scriptura come about then? Yeah, and when, how and when yeah. are, are both po- two very important at, questions. If what we've looked at in the Fathers was was the teaching of the Church all the way up until the, the early 16th century, I, well, I guess I just gave the answer time-wise, how did the change take place? Okay, this is what we want to dig into for a moment. And although there are a number of contributing factors, we're going to come back to this later on when we talk about the Reformation, why did it happen, how did it come about, and things like that. Sola Scriptura, though, mainly was born in the conflict that erupted between the Protestant reformers and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in the early 16th century. And Martin Luther is the name that pops up first. He's the guy who struck the match, you know, uh, quote unquote. Luther was an Augustinian monk. Luther was a Catholic priest, and he was a professor of scripture at the Catholic University of Wittenberg in Germany. Now, Luther had a number of issues with the church, again, that we don't need to go into right now because we're going to the key thing. The key issue for him, though, was the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide. While Luther was teaching um, at the University of Wittenberg, preparing his lectures and lecturing through the Psalms, lecturing through Paul's epistles to the Galatians and to the Romans, he came to a view of how one is justified in the sight of God that was different than what the church taught, what the church held to be true. And as Luther began to teach his views and to publish his views abroad, naturally he ran into conflict with the hierarchy of the church. And the church said to him, you're wrong, Luther. Martin Luther said, no, you're wrong, church. The, the, the church said, I mean, I'm, I'm cutting this down to the bare bones, but this is essentially what happened. The this is the whole said, diet no. of worms right there in a single, yeah, that's a diet of, a single of, exchange. of worms. The church said, you're wrong. Luther said, you're wrong. The church said, but Martin, what you are teaching about how one is justified before God, it conflicts with what the church has taught. It, it conflicts with the settled teaching of the church on this subject. The millennium and a half of settled tradition of the church. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, Alistair McGrath's great book, another thing we'll come to at some point soon. Okay, at this point, the foundational issue of authority was touched, Matt, you know, in this, in this um, back and forth. And Luther faced a watershed. The question, what did he believe about who ultimately has authority to determine Christian doctrine? That's the watershed question. And he, he really only had two options. At this point, Luther could stand with the church. I mean, he could think this over and he could say, you know what? I really think that I'm interpreting St. Paul correctly in Galatians and Romans and my view of justification, but I must be wrong. I must be missing something because here I am standing against 1,500 years of of, thought. And every single saint on my church calendar. Yeah. He, He could have done that, though. You know, he could have said, I must be wrong. You know, I recant. His other option, though, would be to abandon the authority of the church, the authority of tradition, and stand on his own interpretation of St. Paul and, 
and we all know what Luther did. A part of the famous quotation is he stood before the Diet of Worms, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by evident reason, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. And you know what? That statement from Luther is why I celebrated him. That statement of Luther is why I hailed him as a hero, even though I thought Lutheranism was not the right conclusion to draw from this. The fact that a guy is standing before a bunch of dudes, you know, with their medieval trappings and saying, you know what, the Bible Bible is everything, and here I stand, I can do no other. Um, I, I... that's why, yeah. you know, we, we read him as a hero, because that's what we believe, too. And here he was saying what we believed about the Bible while facing, you know, all kinds of harm to life, limb, career, and, and everything else. Yeah, and you know, you remind me of something, because um, I had only been a Christian one or two years, and I'm sitting in this world religions class in college, and... Um, the professor showed this old, beautiful black and white film about Martin Luther. It's called Luther. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I, I mean, I had tears in my eyes. I had tears welling up and maybe running courage, down my cheeks. The boldness. When I saw him stand before those, you know, of course, the way they filmed it, you know, the way they set it up before those grim-faced, evil, you know, hierarchy. Joyless, joyless, joyless clerics. You know, and he said, here I stand, I can do no other. So, yeah. But the important thing philosophically to understand here is though, is that by standing there, the foundation of the Catholic worldview, which had been, we look at the light of sacred scripture, we view it through the lens of sacred tradition, and and it's interpreted ultimately by the authoritative teaching office of the church, the three-legged stool, was rejected. And in that moment, the foundation of a new worldview, the Protestant worldview, was laid. The Bible is the Christian's sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Well, that's so what, it's, major that's what the doctrine says. Yeah, that's what the doctrine says, but that's not how the doctrine works. You know, Luther no. didn't take the authority from the church and put it in the Bible. He took well, the authority of the church and put it in himself, and that's where everything went nuts. Yeah, and you know what? You're, you're touching on an issue that is so good, but we're going to be we're going to jump up and down on this issue next week. So can I ha- can I ask you to? That's all right. I'll I'll, st- I'll okay. stand back. I'll stand back and and I will let you run the playground for now. Well, you know, it's baby steps. If we don't follow baby steps, we we can't see all the We can't get onto the elevator. That's right. Okay. So first of all, what I want to bring out is this, the the implications of this view of, of Sola Scriptura. It's impossible to overstate the importance, the power of the implication of this critical moment in the history of Christianity. Because from now on, each Christian that is within the Protestant system of thinking, each Christian would have the right to do exactly what Luther had done, to read the Bible, to study it, to pray, and ultimately, Matt, to decide for himself what he believed it to be teaching without being bound by any authority on earth. No pope, no council, no tradition, no other theologian. I mean, mean, in theory, every Christian would have the right to do that. Protestantism refers to this as the right of private judgment. So this is not something I'm dreaming up. The right of private judgment or the right of private interpretation. Or to use Luther's words again, quote, in these matters of faith, to be sure, each Christian is for himself, Pope, and Church. All right? So we're working through the logic 
Luther stands and says, Scripture is my basis, I can do no other. I stand upon Scripture, here I stand. He says this, Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian. This leads inescapably. I mean, the primary implication, common sense from this is, therefore, I have the right to do what you did, Luther. You stood on the Word of God, on that is on your interpretation of the Word of God. I have the right to stand on my interpretation. And at, at this point, though, to balance things out, it's important to emphasize that as Catholics, we also believe in a right of private interpretation, but kind of modified and, and you know, nuanced a bit, all right? Yeah, we actually just put a video out about this at the Coming Home Network, a short insights video uh, with Father Sebastian uh, White, uh, who's a Dominican, and he talks about how you know Dominic brought something new into the church and a new spin and a new angle and a new emphasis but it was subject to the church. And so now it's another way to live Christianity inside the church. You know, Anthony of the desert, here's, you know, sell all you have and, you know, give to the poor and you will have eternal life. And so he decides he's going to become a hermit in the desert. Benedict hears those words and starts Western monasticism. You know, Teresa of Avila hears those words and reforms Carmel, but those are all inside the church. Yeah. And you're bringing up um, um, illustrations from this, from the, from the monastic world but illustrations within the scholarly world is, as oh, well sure. apply. I mean, Catholic scholars abound who learn Hebrew and Greek and study the Bible. and Always finding and new stuff. Finding new stuff, new insights, new interpretations of various passages. But the thing is this, as Catholics, we hold this right of private interpretation to be a limited right. That is, it's a right, well, as you said so well just a moment ago, it's a right that is practiced within the limits of what the Church has already formally defined as being true. Now, that and, sounds really restrictive unless you think of it in the proper way. Yeah, and uh, uh, I like to use an analogy that I got from, from Dr. Peter Kraft. He says, we Catholics, we're like children playing in a playground, okay? We can swing back and forth. We can go down the slide. We can sit in the sandbox, the sandbox, if you will, of Scripture, and we can throw biblical texts into each other's eyes all day long. You know, what does Paul mean by this phrase? What's he saying in this exact context? What is the argument he's making? So forth. But... There's a fence around our playground that keeps us from wandering out into the street and just being steamrolled by any uh, theological fad that comes down the road. You can get That's, bit by the rabid wolf bat of mid-axe dispensationalism if you cross that fence. Or late-axe. And man, I, I mean, I'm so tempted. I want to keep this short, but I'm so tempted to run off at this point because when I came to Christ, it was in a home Bible study that believed in late acts dispensationalism. And that's, that's a whole story. I'm just, so I'm we, just baiting we didn't believe you right in here. baptism. I'm, I'm baiting you, man. <laughs> so we didn't believe in baptism and we didn't believe in the Lord's Supper because that was all Jewish stuff. But anyway, that's another issue. Uh, using this analogy of, of Dr. Peter Kraft or extending it, what Luther did essentially was he took this fence away, the fence that, around the playground. Um, it, essentially, what Luther said was at the end of the day, I don't care what the early church thought about this or that, and I don't care what tradition says, and I don't care what popes have said, and I don't even care ultimately what a council has decided. My conscience is captive to Scripture. What I see being taught in the Word of God is what I stand with. So he he took the limited right that we enjoy as Catholics, and he made it an uh, an absolute right. He, he pushed it over. He, he took the fence down. Now you can wander out into the street. And now you can be bowled over. And when you think of it, this is entirely reasonable given the premise that he was operating under. Again, it follows inescapably from the idea that Scripture will be our sole and sufficient infallible rule of faith and practice. Because in the absence of a church 
an authoritative church in which the deposit of faith, we believe, has been preserved by the Holy Spirit, guarded and handed down through the ages so that there's some fence around the playground. Really, Matt, what is left but to say that each one of us, you, me, Luther, the other guy, has the right to decide for himself. I don't think this is hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. And you know what else? It's also not like a theoretical thing where we can say, well, this is what could happen if you open the door that Luther opened. It's not theoretical. It's historical. This is what did happen when Luther opened that door. Yeah, it's not hard to see the logic of it, and it's not hard to anticipate what would come of it um, and what did come of it. Chaos. When Luther and uh, Melanchthon and the other reformers, when they began preaching sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, almost immediately, and I mean within a year, almost immediately, there was an explosion of interpretations of scripture, and with this, an explosion of divisions within the Protestant movement. I'm not talking about divisions within Catholicism now, within the Protestant movement. The result almost instantaneously was chaos, theological division. Now, as you mentioned, this is simply an historical fact. And it's something Luther himself complained about when he saw it happening everywhere. And complained uh, about it in a not terribly self-aware fashion. Yeah. You know, though... I still like to read Luther because he's just so colorful. I mean, Saint, oh, he's he's a blast he, to read, man. He's his like analogies passage, are hilarious. Like the passage from Saint Vincent of Lorraine, you know, colorful. Luther's colorful, but uh, and, and a little profane, but still colorful. This is what Luther said, though, and this was within two years of him standing um, and saying, "Here I stand; I can do no other." Quote: There are as many sects and beliefs as there are heads. This fellow will have nothing to do with baptism, <laughs> late acts dispensationalism. Another denies the sacrament, that is, the Holy Eucharist. A third believes that there is another world between this and the last day. Some teach that Christ is not God. So this had broken out at the time. Some were, some were uh, following Luther's example, and they were reading Scripture, and they were saying, you know, I didn't, I'm not sure that Christ was God. Some say this, some say that. There is no rustic so rude, in other words, there is no farmer out in his field, but that if he dreams or fancies anything... It must be the whisper of the Holy Spirit, and he himself must be a prophet. Noblemen, townsmen, peasants, all classes understand the gospel better than I or St. Paul. They are now wise and think themselves more learned than all their ministers. But wasn't that what he was hoping to achieve? That any farmer could pick up the Bible and read it for himself and see what it says? And now now they're doing it. And he he's didn't ticked. Want the, he didn't want the farmer to pick up the Bible and, and contradict him. Right, I know. That's Like I say, it's a not very self-aware rant by, by Luther. I mean, he realizes, he should realize that this, these people are doing this because he encouraged them to do so. Oh, there's so many veins of thought just come off from this that I'd, I'd have to hold my, my, my brain and... Well, we got to keep and, this under two hours. Okay, in check. Listen, the divisions within Protestantism, we're going to leave Luther now that began to emerge within two years of Luther taking his stand, they, as you and I know, they have continued. So that after about 500 years now, a little more than 500 years, the earth is literally filled with Protestant denominations, sects, independent churches, and churches that are so thoroughly independent that they don't even want to call themselves churches. They're all over the place. And here's the here's where the contradictions are all sort of built in. Each of them basing their teaching on Scripture alone, 
each of them presenting a different set of doctrines, often in contradiction to one another, each of them insisting at the same time, continuing to insist that the Bible is clear and therefore sufficient alone for faith and practice. And each one of them, Matt, based on the teaching of someone who at some point in the past decided, to quote again from St. Vincent, to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church because they saw it as being written. They saw some passages in the Bible, some book in the Bible. And as Vincent says, do they appeal to Scripture? Yes, they do, and with a vengeance. Which is absolutely the truth. You know, I was still a Protestant pastor when all this stuff's kind of coming to me, Matt. But I looked around the evangelical landscape, and I had to admit I saw chaos. I saw mega churches out there led by young, charismatic men who had no clue what the church had believed in the 2nd century, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and couldn't have cared less. As far as they were concerned, they had their Bible. That was all that was needed. I walked into my own pulpit um, at my Baptist church every Sunday to teach the conclusions of my own personal study of Scripture. And I began to think about the fact that just up the street there was some Lutheran pastor, smarter than me, who prayed 10 times more than I pray, holier than, definitely holier than me, who was contradicting me on important points. And then right up the street from him, there was a Presbyterian pastor who was contradicting both of us. And then down the road, I mean, a Church of Christ pastor who was condemning all three of us to hell. Yeah, and the Church of Christ is interesting in and of itself, not to go into the weeds here, but they're the restorationist movement who said, there's too many divisions and traditions in here. Let's just all gather back under the Bible as the sole rule of faith. And what happens to them? They split into the Disciples Christ, the non-instrumental Church of Christ, the Church of Christ United, the United Church of Christ. Even that movement tried to reclaim it here in this country a couple hundred years ago, and it it went bust for the same reasons. For the same reasons. That's exactly right. I was a Baptist minister still, but I was definitely coming to see that sola scriptura simply doesn't work. Um, it, It hasn't worked. It's been a blueprint for theological anarchy and chaos. It doesn't work. And I don't think it can work, even in principle, because each one studying the scripture comes to different points of view. Now, I want to close with just quickly with a passage, because a passage that really hit me was Ephesians chapter 4. In this passage, you'll remember it. We don't need to read it. Paul talks about why God gave pastors and teachers to the church. And he, he says that God gave the church pastors and teachers to build the church up in unity. Okay? That's why he gave them, to build the church in unity. And he says, so that the children of God would not be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine and all. Anyway, I was reading that, and at a certain point, Matt, it really hit me. I mean, it it hit me like a brick that what Paul has in mind here, it could only work, it could only work if there was some authoritative teaching to which all these pastors and teachers were bound. Um, Because, you know, pastors and teachers scattered all over the world. If there's an authoritative teaching to which they're all bound, then when they teach, they will be building up the church in unity. But take it the other way. What if all these pastors and teachers scattered all over the earth, are each of them free to look into the Bible alone, to study, to pray, and to follow Martin Luther's example, what they see taught in Scripture? Well, then the reverse would happen. Pastors and teachers would become the very forces 
driving the children of God about by every wind and wave of doctrine. And it just really hit me, Matt, that when I look at the denominational situation, that's it. You know, uh, churches sheep stealing one denomination from another because we're right. And, and you're, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, mean, I know exactly this what you're is saying. Exactly, this is exactly the status. Pastors and teachers in a Protestant system do not build up the church in unity. They drive the children of God about by every wind and wave of doctrine, their own and, private interpretation. And, and two things. So when I would see the division and see the unworkability of Sola Scriptura, my first conclusion was, well, this is because people aren't reading the Scriptures correctly. It was not until very late that I realized the problem with Sola Scriptura is that Sola Scriptura is a subversion of scriptural principles at the end of the day. But the other thing that I, I began to realize, and this was the thing that was really baffling to me, was how is it that the divisions in the church come after Sola Scriptura is articulated? And if you look back at the Council of Nicaea, how is it these people without internet and email and websites and, you know, coming to Constantinople every year to check in with one another are all on the same page? How? Yeah, they, yeah, the Bible's was... not around for 50 more years. How are these people all on the same page when there's n they don't have cars or planes or trains or anything? Or there had to be something else. Nothing. Yeah. So. Okay. And, and so at this point, though, here's the cliffhanger, okay? Here's the all right, bring it on. But I'm basing my cliffhanger now on something you said about 20 minutes ago. That is moving forward in baby steps. The, steps. The next logical question, or the next interesting question, is this: How did Luther and the other reformers? How did they respond to the division that was unleashed by their own teaching of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment? And you hinted what at did that. What they with, do? Yeah, you hinted at that with the farmers reading their Bible and coming to something different than Martin Luther came up with, and not making him angry, but. There's a lot more than that to dig into, so I guess we have what to What did they do? That's what we're going to look at next week. We're going to see. We're going to see. We're going to dig into the history. We're going to try and not step on the deep in history guy's toes by getting deep into this, but hopefully we've uh, helped spark some thoughts and questions and conversations. If you want to post in our comments, we encourage you to do so. Some of those get kind of lively at times. And uh, we encourage you to be respectful in your exchanges. Uh, you can come visit us at chnetwork.org. That's chnetwork.org. We would love to hear from you over at the Coming Home Network. In the meantime, Ken, thanks again. We'll talk to you next week. Make sure to subscribe on the YouTube channel.